Today is one of those days when I don't know what to say. Now, if you know me, then you know I'm never at a loss for words. Um, I've always got plenty of ideas and feelings. But today's one of those days where I just, I don't know what to say. And, and how are you supposed to know what to say when on February 23rd, 2020, an African-American gentleman by the name of Ahmaud Arbery goes for a run in his neighborhood, not bothering anyone, and then he is gunned down by two white guys in his community, to which they just head home after murdering a gentleman, and there's no justice until finally a video is leaked, and there's national outcry, and then finally there's justice that's pursued. I mean, what are we supposed to say when on March 13, 2020, Breonna Taylor is in her apartment at 1 a.m. when two police officers in civilian garb bust down the door and pile eight bullets into her body. Falsely accused, misunderstood, they murder her in her home. I mean, what are we supposed to say? When on May 25th, George Floyd is sitting in his car, not breaking any laws, and then he's asked to come out of his car, lay down on the ground, and the officer puts his knee on his neck slowly suffocating him to death, cutting off oxygen flow for over eight minutes as he's crying out, I can't breathe, and then dies within the hour because of complications. And then on Sunday, May 31st, I woke up like many of you with a world on fire. Anger, protests, violence, they were all over the place. And I, as I sat there on my couch, I was paralyzed. I didn't want to get up, and I was in the middle of prayer, and I just kept crying out and weeping and longing for God to do something and not knowing exactly what to do. I mean, it's been a lot lately. The chaos, the violence, the protests, it's everywhere. It's been here in downtown, just a couple blocks away from, a few blocks away from our downtown campus. Streets were closed off, and it's not just here in our city, but it's across the nation. It's been a lot. And so on Monday, we came together as a teaching team from across campuses as pastors, and we knew that we couldn't just go with what we had planned before any of this happened. We needed to make a pivot. And you, if you know anything about Christ's community, it takes a lot for us to deviate from our plans. But this is the conversation we needed to have. This is our pivot to speak to our community, because we need, we need this conversation. And even though I don't know what to say, even though I've got a lot I would like to say, I know one thing is that I can't be silent. In the midst of my anger, in the midst of my frustration, in the midst of my confusion, as I'm holding some of you, I've met with some of you and we've wept together. I know I can't be silent because I serve a king who went to the cross in the midst of oppression and then three days later came out alive, empowering his people to speak life in the midst of death, to walk through death so that we might bring life, so that we might actually pray boldly that that kind of life actually comes out of the darkest of moments. But what do we even pray? And see, I gather a lot of encouragement, a lot of hope, knowing that most of the time when Jesus is teaching, when we look across the gospel accounts, he's speaking to people who are in these kinds of circumstances, who feel jaded, who feel broken, who feel confused and oppressed, wondering what to say. 
And so today we're turning to Luke chapter 11. In the New Testament, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. And you got to imagine this context. You have people who are used to occupation, used to oppression for years. The Roman Empire has been bearing down on the nation of Israel. They've watched their children abused. They've been abused. They've cried out for God to do something and they felt 400 years of prophetic silence, wondering if God's even listening, if he's doing anything at all. It doesn't feel like they're making any steps forward, but many steps back. And then suddenly Jesus shows up And the people they thought that were lost causes are experiencing healing. The people they thought would forever be excluded are now being included. And so they see Jesus. They see that God's actually listening to Jesus and somehow working through Jesus. And they say, Jesus, teach me how to pray. Show me how to actually speak to God that it brings change. And so Jesus does. When we don't know what to say, Jesus shows us how. We can even pray. And what I love about Luke's version, if you, if you read it, you may be thinking, hey, this feels a lot shorter than what I'm used to saying. And Matthew's version's a little bit longer. Luke's is a little bit shorter. And there are a lot of different ideas as to why that is. I tend to think that's because Jesus taught the same things, but in different ways, in different contexts. And so Luke captures the tradition that Jesus was teaching, and he taught a shorter Lord's Prayer for particular group of people. You see, Luke is always, 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 and his gospel count especially, seeking to uplift the marginalized, the minority, the outcast, and the vulnerable. He has always got that particular group in mind, and when a a people group feels voiceless, and they feel constantly shut up, and sometimes can barely feel like they can grasp the air to breathe, Jesus says, all it takes is but this simple prayer, short and sweet, and God will bring change. So let's see what this prayer is. If you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And Jesus says, this is how you're supposed to pray. And he says, Father. And, and we're going to talk specifically about this Father piece a little bit more next week. But what we first just need to grasp, we just need to remember, and, and we can't say this enough, is that when you come approaching God, because of Jesus... We don't come needing to talk to and through a representative to get to God the Father. Because of Jesus' finished work, we can come boldly before his throne of grace. We don't need to write a letter to our Congress hoping that something might change. We don't need to write a comment card hoping that it might make it to the right department. Instead, when we pray, we come with the voice and the privilege of children of God, and he listens to us with the ears of a father. And so Jesus says, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, this is going to sound ridiculous to say out loud, but in in order to ask for something to come, it means that it's not here yet. In other words, even in those best moments of our lives, where life feels all right, Jesus says that his kingdom has an abundance and even greater radical renewal than we can even fathom, even in its best moments. His kingdom isn't here yet, and Jesus wants us to eagerly hunger, to long, to want his kingdom to come. So much so that the language here is that of an imperative, a demand. Your kingdom come. 
It's not a very trite request. This is a heavy demand such that when we come in prayer, we actually demand that God fulfills his promises and his desires. God, bring your agenda. God, bring your justice. God, abolish racism. God, abolish hate. May your love reign supreme. And so we demand your kingdom come. But what this also means is not only that his kingdom has not fully come, but that there is another kingdom that is here that is in direct opposition to his. And it's a kingdom that's desperately holding on to power. It's holding on to power and it leverages death, manipulation, oppression, racism, and injustice to further the cause of utter destruction. And you see, when you begin to pray, your kingdom come, it completely goes against the kingdom that is. And when you begin to long for this kingdom, you're longing for nothing less than a world where no longer, no longer does a black man need to be afraid to go out for a jog in his neighborhood and fear that he might lose his life. That's not my father's kingdom. No longer. You see, when we start asking for our Father's kingdom to come, it means nothing less, nothing less than the end of a world where a black man like Christian Cooper can actually approach someone, a woman who's, who doesn't have her dog on a leash, and say, hey, can you put your dog on a leash because this isn't a leashless park, and not expect the police to be weaponized where she says, well, if you, stop, if you don't stop bothering me, then I'm going to call the police and tell them an African-American man is threatening me. That's not my father's kingdom. If we begin to cry out, your kingdom come, Father, we are crying for no less than a world where our black and brown brothers and sisters can walk through a grocery store without feeling the the white gaze or the perspective and the racial profiling and someone following them around the store without any just cause but just because of the color of their skin. That's not my father's kingdom. When we're asking for our father's kingdom to come, it's, it's nothing less than a world where no longer parents of black and brown children when stories like George Floyd's come on TV don't have to explain to their elementary children that they have to be extra safe when they leave the home because they, they can't promise their protection when they walk out those doors. Or when parents have to explain to their black and brown teenage children that when you get your driver's license, be ready to, be, to have a DWB, driving while black, where you'll be pulled over first because of your color of your skin, and then the post hoc justification of finding fault. That's not my father's kingdom. And when we pray for his kingdom to come, it completely pushes against the kingdom that is. And when you hear those stories... When we hear the reality of the world in which we live and our hearts are not broken and we are not led to active compassion, then we need to get back on our knees and we need to pray your kingdom come again and again and again, asking that the Holy Spirit would begin to actually massage our affections to be more in line with his purposes. We need to be praying alongside of our minority brothers and sisters so that we can hear their prayers and actually train how to better pray. And here's why. You know what's at stake in all of this? Jesus makes it abundantly clear. What's at stake is the holiness 
of God's reputation. You see, when we begin to try to uphold either explicitly, implicitly, or unintentionally the kingdom that is rather than the kingdom that is to come in the name of Jesus, we actually desecrate God's name. And so when we begin to think that the best kingdom actually matches perfectly a particular man, such that we can never question a particular man in authority, or it perfectly matches a man-made vision, if our understanding of the kingdom of God perfectly lines up with the Democratic Party, or perfectly lines up with the Republican Party, or perfectly lines up with you fill in the blank, your personality, or even your own convictions, such that when Scripture convicts, your agenda silences Scripture. Beware, because when we do that and so say that we are Christians, we are dragging Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit through the mud. His reputation is at stake. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Are you longing? Are you demanding his kingdom? And hear me, the longer you pray that prayer, the more you long for it, and then you don't see progress, weeks, months, years, decades, generations pass, and it feels like you're not only not moving forward, but moving back, and you're lamenting over the city like Jesus does later in Luke, and you feel the pain. If you do that in your own strength, your soul will wear thin, and you will not be able to stand. Which is why Jesus, he's just so brilliant. Jesus is such a brilliant leader. He invites us to then ask for daily bread. What does he say in verse 3? But give us each day our daily bread. You know, I don't, I don't remember the last time. It's, it's been a minute since I've, I've really felt the need of God's sustaining power not just day by day, but almost hour by hour. My muscles are twitching. I feel exhausted. I feel worn out. And that's me being a white guy. We live in a man's world with structures that are there to support whiteness. I can only begin to imagine how that is felt for our minority brothers and sisters, where that is their experience day in and day out. Which is why this provision from God is more than just strength, but it's also forgiveness. I'm aware to some degree of my white fragility that when it starts to feel like a lot, I just so, I just so deeply want to be able to walk away. I, won't, I want the world quote-unquote normal, meaning I just don't want to have to deal with race because frankly, I can live my life without it. And I want to deal with my own problems, which are real problems, but that's a problem. And Jesus knew where we would be. He knew that we would have a myopic view of his kingdom. He knew that we were going to need his forgiveness. He knew that we were going to have to call upon repentance. He knew that there was going to be a proclivity to head towards death and a deep movement of the Spirit to actually bring conviction of guilt that now moves us back towards the path of life by the power of the Spirit. And he's inviting us to actually ask for this forgiveness that we all desperately need. 
I so easily see certain and only ache for certain parts of his kingdom to come to fruition because I don't easily step into solidarity with my minority brothers and sisters. And I begin to define the kingdom of God by my own limited cultural perspective. God, forgive us. Forgive me. And give me provision. What about you? And not just provision do we need to ask for. Because hear me, we need a lot of protection. <laughs> because there is an evil one. The Apostle Peter later talks about the devil is like this roaring lion who's ready to devour. He wants to lure you across the line so he has just cause to pull you down to the ground and then to continue to beat you while you curled up or curled up in the, the fetal position. And he, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's deceptive, he's brilliant, and he's cunning. And so we hear the call to beware which is why Jesus, once again, in his brilliant prayer, doesn't stop with provision, doesn't stop with provision of daily bread or grace, but then moves on to protection. And what does he say in verse 4? He says, and lead us not into temptation. Father, lead us not into temptation. Now, there are three temptations that, as I think about my own heart and life, that are really common to me, that are common to us, that really knock on the door of us as a church. And here's the first one. I think it's so easily, easy to be tempted to avoid. No, one of the number one temptations for you and I is avoidance. It's when things feel most overwhelming, when we feel most afraid that we're not going to say it right or do it right. That's when we, we feel guilt and we feel overwhelming shame, like this is awful but I just don't have the energy right now. And I'd rather just watch something and just escape. I'd rather zone out, or maybe even I'll just watch a documentary about it, rather than actually leveraging my energy, my position, my privilege to actually be a catalyst and change. And so we're silent. Maybe we'll like a couple posts online by others, but we'll never voice our own personal angst, our own desire for God's kingdom to come. And so we avoid. And I fail to remember far too often that I have the privilege as a white person to compartmentalize this conversation. It can sit nice and neat over here and then I can navigate the rest of my life. I can talk about race and then when it gets like too much, then I can back out. But for our minority brothers and sisters, for those of you who are part of our church, we know you can't just jump out of that conversation. When these stories show up on the news, or when often they don't, it's either a friend, it's a family member, or at the very least, what is told through that story of a black or brown person for all black or brown people is that you don't belong. That's the message that's communicated. And so continually having to fight and remember that God has made all human beings in his image worthy of love and respect. And yet I want to avoid. I want to compartmentalize. I let my white fragility get the best of me and I just want to be quiet and hope that it all passes away or someone else takes care of it someday. Our Father, lead us not into temptation. 
Second, I think real common temptation is oversimplification. Oversimplification. This is where we come with really easy answers or half-truths because they're, they take a little bit of effort, not a lot. We don't want to dive into the complexity of racism and its past and how it continues to impact the present. We can talk about specific one-off um, bad cops or bad you name it fill in the blank rather than thinking through an overhaul of a whole justice system we want to think that if you're pro black lives matter then you're necessarily anti-cop and listen the categories aren't that nice and neat it's way more complex it requires so much more energy and i know for some right now that's where you're at you're really frustrated by this whole thing and maybe, just maybe, you're surprised you've engaged this long. Maybe you're sitting next to a spouse that you see this very differently. You're prepared to write an email with a sentence, yeah, but... And for so many, you may be really frustrated that I haven't named the evil of looting or rioting yet that has taken place. And we haven't paid any attention to how American racism has been looting and rioting against the black community for centuries. Both aren't courses of action that honor God's kingdom, but the second is way worse, and the second helps build empathy as to how the first could possibly happen. Oversimplification. But I, I, I get the temptation, okay? I get it. We want to point the finger. We want to blame somebody. We want the blame to land all on someone else. That's been the case for us as human beings since Adam and Eve. We want to be able to say, listen, I'm innocent in all this. I didn't do that. I don't have a part to play. I get it. I want to say that too so often. I want to jump into the oversimplification. I want to talk about what I'm doing with my white privilege rather than how white privilege actually has me in ways I don't even understand. How my implicit bias has been guiding me in ways that I don't even realize. How I've been silencing the voices who have been speaking truth into my life because it's just inconvenient. And listen, I get it. And maybe, maybe just maybe, we've gone so far in the oversimplification category that you actually see them as the enemy. If we just got rid of them, then the world would be a better place. They are the problem. You need to hear this. The evil one loves that kind of thinking. It's a part of his brilliant cunning. He wants to destroy the world. He wants to, the world to devour itself. He wants the church to be a mockery because of its continued divisions. And the evil one is just relishing in this. And he doesn't really do it by shouts, okay? Most of the time, he's not blatant. When we see blatant racism, it turns our stomachs. There's still enough of that within our common humanity. But it's in the quiet whispers, in the back halls, in those one-on-one -on -one conversations, or even just in the internal reality of your own conscience, where I didn't do that. That's not my fault. If they would just get their act together, you know, if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't be doing that. What did they do wrong? They must have deserved this. And listen, if you don't think you're tempted by oversimplification, the evil one's already won the war. This is a temptation for all of us. Beware. Our Father, lead us not into temptation. And the third and final, I think, really common temptation right now it's the one I'm wrestling with the most is despair. 
And, 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 and then the hidden weapon in despair in the midst of all this is that it comes with a lot of shame. I've already named this. As a white guy in majority culture, my stamina to engage racial conversations is so much smaller than my minority brothers and sisters. It's kind of like when I was first training for a marathon, right? When I was first training and I was running with people who run marathons regularly, they could just go out and do 15 miles and then go on the rest of the day as if everything was normal. But for me, I do two miles, I'm exhausted, and I need to get in an ice bath for the rest of the day, right? Like that was the beginning. I had to work up my stamina. And in this conversation, I just feel so far behind. I feel like my stamina is so low. And I feel like we're finally making progress. And then suddenly, I mean, literally, the, the news headlines feel like they're from 50 years ago. Shot for shot for shot. And it can be tempting to give up. If you're white and you're watching this, look to your minority brothers and sisters. They are a brilliant example of resilience in the midst of pain. No one's declaring anyone's perfect, but we do need to be aware of how our brothers and sisters of color have led the way and are challenged to us to continue to walk on. This is heavy, this is hard, but it isn't hopeless. Because listen, after all that I've said, listen, I still don't know exactly what to say. I don't. But there's one thing I know. I know, I know down to my bones. And that we, it, it, it's that we have Jesus. We have him yesterday, today, and forever. And that's not to now guide us into quiet pietism that allows us to sit on the sidelines and feel okay with doing nothing. No, 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 no. That gives us deep hope. And as downtown member Darion told me the other day, he's coming back, baby. Like, he's coming back. And there's going to be a day where we're not going to have to try to figure out what words to say. There's going to be a day where we're not going to have to pray this prayer anymore because his kingdom will come. Every, we'll find a, a large community of people who are followers of Jesus. Revelation chapter 7, from every tongue, from every nation, from every tribe, from various cultural expressions, centered in unity, knowing forgiveness, where injustice is abolished. Racism has no longer got its fingers intertwined in every single system in which we see one another and engage one another, but rather we will live in true unity and tears will be no more. There will be one day, well, it will be truly one kingdom, one family because of one Lord Jesus over all. But that day isn't today. We aren't one. We don't have one kingdom. We're in the middle of a battle. And our rulers and authorities are not perfect and are deeply flawed. And so we continue. When we don't know what to say, we hold fast to the words of Jesus and we pray them. We lament over this city. We cry for his kingdom to come. And we use these times of prayer not as places to placate our own souls, but rather to energize us in the fight. To continue to cry, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, while loving mercy, while walking humbly with our God for our brothers and our sisters, for our city, for this world, for the very reputation of God. 
And when we don't have the words to say, let's pray the words of Jesus to fuel us to continue to step in. And listen, there's a lot of other specifics, right? Don't expect this one sermon to answer everything, because it surely won't. We could talk about supporting black-owned businesses. We could talk about how we engage in broader systems and reaching out to your representative. There's so much we could be talking about. But right now, we simultaneously need to pray. So let's pray what Jesus invites us to pray. Father. Oh, you're a good father. I'm holding fast to that. I'm holding fast to your character and your motives. I'm holding fast to who you are and your promises, not to the circumstances around me to define who you are, but what you've done throughout history and what you've brilliantly shown me in the death of your own son and the resurrection of Jesus so that you might give me life and forgiveness. Father, hallowed be your name. Help us as the church in the United States to honor your name. And not just see that as something where we don't take your quote-unquote name in vain with our language, but we don't take your name in vain with our lifestyle and the other kingdoms that we promote. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Bring about renewal. Bring about reconstruction. God, we know in the darkest of moments, that's when you do your deepest work, and that's what we're holding on hope, and so we're demanding now. When things feel chaotic, when the, the world feels undone, when the cracks in this broken present system and kingdom feel visible, we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would break in, that you would guide us as your church. May we do your work, your kingdom come. And give us each our daily bread. Sustain us, God, in this work over the long haul, because this is a long lament and an even messier battle. And forgive us of all the ways in which we miss it. Guide us in your grace. And help us to be forgiving each other. Even in some of the most absurd of situations. Because that's what you've taught us is the way to life. And the way to reconciliation in the end. And lead us not into temptation. God, there's so many voices out there. So often we give you like an hour or two a week, Jesus. Maybe in the church gathered, maybe in some devotions, but then we're discipled by cable news. We're discipled by talk radio and all these other cultural voices that are leading down different kingdoms. May your voice be primary. May we hold fast to you. May we be eagerly anticipating your work and not be tempted to avoid, to oversimplify, or to fall into despair. God, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit who comes bilingual, Abba, Father. About the work that you've been doing from the beginning with Jews and Gentiles, with slave and free, bringing us together from various classes, various socioeconomic status, gender, racial, ethnicities, all of that, you are making us one, but also celebrating our diversities. God, may you, by the power of that spirit that's building that kingdom with this people, may it come in the name of Jesus, our King, and all authority of heaven and earth, we pray. Amen.
Amen. And now we turn to a meal that has always been a bit of a meal of revolution. We're in the midst of oppression and attack. God the Father and God the Son work together and live out their plan of redemption by Jesus coming, taking all of our sin, even the worst of it upon himself, dying on the cross, rising again and offering us to new life. That's what this meal invites us and reminds us of. A changing world yet to come. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have those elements available to you and you want to partake in the Lord's Supper, now would be a perfect time to do that. If you need a second to go grab those elements, you can pause right here and go and do that. But as we come to the Lord's Supper, let's remember what was actually done, what's been handed down to us as a guide, even for us as 21st century Christians. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, take and eat.